Welcome to episode four of the New Testament. My name is Anton Brooks, and I'm here with David Schrock, the pastor of preaching and theology here at Aquaquam Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Let's go ahead and jump in uh, at Matthew 16. Um, we're going to look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and how they demanded signs in 16, 1 through 4. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. At this point, Jesus has done a myriad of miracles, signs, uh, just things of of, of who he is. So why, why are, the, are the Pharisees and the Sadducees still demanding a sign at this point? What are they trying to do? What are they trying to accomplish? Yeah, I mean, again, if, if they don't have faith, which they don't at this point, they're going to be some priests, Acts will say, that later, after resurrection and the church begins to grow, that will come to, to saving faith. But at this point, they are not believing in Christ at all. Right? And I think this is just the nature of unbelief that one of the ways that an unbelieving heart is going to present itself is they always need more evidence. Always more evidence. And evidence doesn't change the heart. Right? I mean, this is why when we share the gospel with other people, right, we can give all the evidence in the world. Here, here's your Josh McDowell, evidence that demands a verdict. We can give that to somebody. They can read it all, and yet they won't be converted. They won't be born again unless God does the work in their heart. Right. Right? So, Jesus will say in John's Gospel, John 10, 26, he's speaking to the Pharisees and he says, You do not believe because you are not my sheep. Mm. Now, I might say that differently. We might say it the opposite. Yeah. You are not my sheep because you do not believe. However, if you believe, then you can become my sheep. Right. But he says the opposite of that which seems to indicate that their unbelief in John 10 or in Matthew 16 is evidence of their lack of sheepiness. Right, yeah. Right? right? Jesus will talk about the fact that he has been sent from the Father into the world uh, to redeem the lost sheep of Israel. But apparently not every son of Israel is a sheep. Right? Some are goats. Some are wolves. And some, when they hear the message, do not respond to their shepherd, mm -hmm. right? So John 10, again, the shepherd speaks and the sheep follow. But obviously, in Israel and in the world today, not, as ever, not everyone is a sheep. Right. Um, you know, so this, this gets back to the doctrine of election, right? And that those who God gives ears to hear are those that hear. And certainly some of these Pharisees do not have ears to hear. Therefore, they keep demanding a sign. Right. Uh, when Jesus says, okay, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. <laughs> yeah. Right? His death and resurrection becomes the telltale sign. Right. Uh, and yet, Jesus will say later also, um, when he talks about uh, uh, Lazarus um, and, and the man, the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus is the poor man outside the rich man's house. The rich man dies. And uh, just shockingly, uh, this parable that goes on between Abraham and Abraham's bosom and God. And, and he says, look, even if somebody rises from the dead, uh, if they don't believe the words of Moses, uh, mm -hmm. they're not going to believe. And it's like, okay, even that great sign of resurrection, 
uh, is going to be turned deaf ear and blind eye unless the Spirit of God gives them the faith to be able to receive it. Well, in Matthew 16, 13 through 18, it reads this way. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do, they, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, the Catholic Church um, claims that Peter is the first pope. Mm -hmm. Is this how this text should be read? Uh, if we think so, we should just check our Protestant card at the door, right? right? <laughs> uh, so, no, I, I don't think that's the way this ought to be read. Um, Again, this, this rock language that is here, that's certainly the name that Jesus gives to Peter, Petros, Petra, means rock. Um, it says, on this rock I will build my church. I want to take that uh, as a Protestant against the Catholic understanding of this uh, to say that it's on his confession. And yet he says it's on this rock. Mm -hmm. So I take Peter uh, to be one of the foundation stones right. of the church. Right? Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Uh, and then the apostles and the prophets are the, are, are the foundation stones. Now, prophets there are not just Old Testament prophets, but I'd say the New Testament prophets, the one who are speaking the words of God inspired by the Holy Spirit to do that. And I get that from Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3. So Ephesians 2, uh, verse 20, says, um, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God. He's talking to Jews and Gentiles. Now, these are the, this is the household of God, the family of faith. And what are they built on? They're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, right? So that's Peter, that's John, mm -hmm. that's Matthew, it's all those guys. Um, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, right? So Jesus is not one among the foundation stones. He's the main right. foundation stone. He is the cornerstone. Verse 21 goes on, In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So this temple <coughs> that is being constructed, made up of living stones, right? Peter, again, speaks of the church as uh, a household of God made up of living stones, has foundation stones in the apostles and the prophets. And we know prophets here is not the Old Testament because in chapter 3 of Ephesians, uh, it speaks like this. It says, when you read this, verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. So mm -hmm. in the past, in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Right. So there were prophets in other generations before, but now in the New Testament era you have apostles and prophets given the Holy Spirit and signs to confirm their works and their words. They're laying the foundation stones. Right. This is also why the church... And Acts 2 doesn't give itself to the Word of God in general. It gives itself to the apostles' teaching. Right? So that today, we are a church that is founded on the rock of Peter and Paul and John and the other uh, 
foundation stones mm -hmm. because Jesus, the cornerstone, gave them his Holy Spirit to inspire their words in order to be the foundation of the universal church. The reason why I asked the question is it seems as if the, um, the culture or the world identifies uh, Christianity as, or Protestants uh, and Catholics as one. Mm. Um, so when when I, when I'm watching TV or listening to the news or whatever, they'll say um, Christians and they'll show the Catholic Church as <laughs> yep. as the one body or authority of, of Christians. Yeah. Um, so that that's the reason why I, w I wanted to ask that question. Yeah, it, and so this is just where it's helpful to know our church history, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so the first 1,000 years of the church, there was one church, right? Right, and so. The Roman Catholic Church can appeal to that, and the Protestant Church can appeal to that, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, Augustine is claimed by both Protestants and Catholics. Mm -hmm. Some have said that in the Reformation, Augustine's uh, doctrine of salvation defeated his doctrine of the Church, right? Because his doctrine of salvation, being filled with grace, led to the Protestant Reformation, and so Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk. Mm -hmm. John Calvin uh, appealed to Augustine quite often. However, Augustine's understanding of the sacraments and his understanding of the church led into the Roman Catholic Church, right? right yeah. so you can see how that's working its way out. The church divided east and west, Orthodox and Catholic Church in, in the 11th century um, over a, a divide with understanding both politically and doctrinally, mm -hmm. and then the Reformation comes, and there's right. a fracture of the Catholic Church from, uh, and Catholic just means universal, but now it's the Roman Catholic Church mm -hmm. uh, and the Protestant Church, which has many denominations for many reasons. And again, some will like to say, well, the Catholic Church is unified. The Protestant Church is divided, all these different denominations. That's not true. The Catholic Church is not unified. There's all sorts of... Mm -hmm fractions and divisions inside the Catholic Church. It may give the appearance or the title of being one church under the Bishop of Rome, right? Uh, but there are all kinds of liberal, conservative divides oh, yeah, definitely. in the Catholic Church. When we look at um, Matthew 16, 21 to 23, let's read that. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, For it be from you, Lord, shall never, that shall never happen to you. But he turned, to, he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. When Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan, to Peter, is he, calling, is he saying that Peter is Satan? No, I don't think so. I think he's just, uh, Peter has absorbed the mentality of Satan, right. or the temptation that Satan gave to Jesus. Mm -hmm. right? If we remember what we saw in Matthew 4, um, that Satan offered to Jesus a kingdom mm -hmm. without a cross. Right, yeah. And now Peter is saying, have your kingdom, Messiah, but you don't need a cross. Yeah. Right? And so he doesn't have his mind on the things of God. He doesn't understand these things yet. He will, he will, uh, but, right. but not yet. And so I think that's why he's getting at this, uh, this temptation or getting at uh, calling him Satan in this instance. Yeah. So a little further down in Matthew 18, 7 through 9, um, reads this way. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptation comes, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. 
And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell fire, the hell of fire. So if we are struggling, if we in today's world are, are struggling um, with our sin, um, such as maybe pornography or maybe going places that cause us to fall into sin or hanging out with people, does the scripture mean that we should pluck out our eye or cut off our feet literally? All right. Um, so again, just principle of interpretation. We come to passages like this. Okay. Is Jesus speaking with hyperbole? Mm -hmm. Is he speaking literally? Would he have me to apply this directly in this way? How do I know? Mm -hmm. Well, this is not the first place in Matthew where we find these words, right? So back in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, mm -hmm. uh, Jesus is talking about uh, the subject of not committing adultery. And this is what it says. It says, Matthew 5, 27, uh, You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. So one of the Ten Commandments, he's quoting there. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Mm -hmm. Get to the heart of the issue. Yeah. The issue is not the body, first and foremost, that is doing these things, but rather it is the human nature, it is the heart that is then compelling the body to do that. Now, we would say that there are ways in which our body does take on patterns and even chemical patterns and chemical mm -hmm. things within us that incline us one way or the other. So just as our soul is fallen, our bodies are fallen, and our body impacts our soul, the inner man, and our inner man then drives and impacts our body. So the two are, are definitely related. But what he's getting at here is that there's something more than just the outward actions, right? So what I think he's saying, verse 29 of Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 5, if your right eye causes you to sin, in other words, if your right eye is the source of the problem, tear it out, throw it away. But if it's not the source of the problem, mm -hmm. if it goes deeper than that, you've got to deal with what's deeper. Right, right? Yeah. Verse 30, he goes on, if your right hand causes you to sin, if that's the source of the problem, get rid of your right hand. Whatever the source is, get rid of it. But ultimately, what's the source? The heart. Right, yeah. Right? The heart is what it is that is at the root issue here. Now, practically speaking, if we have a heart that has been replaced, the heart of stone, the dead heart, has been replaced with the heart of flesh and new life has been given to us, there may be some needs to get rid of certain temptations, mm -hmm. right? We may need to, you know, eliminate our smartphone or eliminate options from our smartphone or mm -hmm. to not go to certain places because we know the temptations are there or to have an accountability if we're going near those places. Whatever the case may be, there are external things we may need to do because of the weakness of our flesh. Right. But ultimately, it's the heart that needs to be dealt with. And just by gouging out the eye is not going to then delete uh, the images that have been seen. That's right. right. And cutting off the hand is not going to prevent us from finding some other way mm -hmm. of sinning. That's the way I read it too. Uh, Matthew 19, uh, verse 23 and 24, and Jesus says, And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Does this mean that a person with a lot of money can't go to heaven? 
a uh, person with a lot of money is not going to take their money to heaven. That's right. Right? <laughs> yeah. um, but going back to what we saw in episode, uh, or the Old Testament uh, part of episode four, Abraham had lots of wealth. Lots of wealth. Right? Um, so, and, and there are many who have used their wealth to the glory of God. And there are many who have had great wealth that has prevented them from the glory of God and the kingdom of God. There are many who have had very little money who all they live for is money, right? Mm -hmm. And there are those who have been poor, who have been abundantly rich in the things of God, right? So ultimately, I don't think he's saying that that is the case. I think, again, the context matters here, right? Because he is talking to his disciples. They're talking about entrance into the kingdom of God. They're talking about salvation. They're talking about eternal life. So just importantly, in Matthew 19, those three terms are used. And it's not as though they're three different things. It's all the same, right? So inheritance in the kingdom of God, eternal life, and salvation are all the same. And what happens is, is that this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and asks, how can I have eternal life? How can I enter the kingdom of God? And he says, you know, to do this, that, or the other thing. And the disciples are like, can anyone be saved? And the answer is, uh, not with what you're doing, right? Right? So in Israel, it was understood that a person who had great wealth, great resources, it was because they were blessed by God because of their obedience to God. And so if the person who is obedient to God has done the law, has experienced blessing and is evidenced by their material wealth, if they can't get into the kingdom, then what hope do we have who haven't had that kind of righteousness or that kind of blessing? And Jesus turns the whole thing on its head. What is impossible with man is possible with God, right? right? Because the one who is infinitely rich, Jesus Christ, becomes infinitely poor, Mm -hmm. destitute, nailed to a cross, takes the full weight of curse in himself so that we can receive the blessing that we did not deserve, right? And so in that way, again, salvation is not based upon our works, And it's not going to be lost because of great wealth or gained because of great wealth unless that great wealth becomes the idol that we worship, Mm -hmm. right? The love of money is the root of all evils, not the possession of it. Um, Again, it comes back to what is our relationship with Christ. Then from there, how do we steward those resources to invest them in the kingdom of God and store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal? So much reminds me of one of our previous conversations where mm-hmm. we're talking about identity. I think that in this case, they're talking about people who have their identity in their wealth yeah. and not in Christ. Yeah. Yep. So let's jump down to Matthew 21, um, verse 12 and 13. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Why was Jesus so displeased with what was going on in the temple? Yeah, so if we ask that question, come in here, and we see it is written, Mm -hmm. right? So whenever we see Jesus say, or in the New Testament office, it is written, we should say, where is it written? Yeah. Right? The answer is going to be the Old Testament. And so we should go find it. Most of our Bibles have a cross-reference. If you don't have one in your Bible, you know, find a Bible that does or go online to esv.org and look up the cross-references there. But when you find that verse, it's going to take you back to Isaiah 56. 
right? In Isaiah 56, um, verse 6, it says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Right, so Jesus comes and he drives out the, the money changers, and part of that is just where is he? Right, it's likely he's in the court of the Gentiles, mm-hmm. right? The place that the Gentiles, these foreigners, might come in and worship and pray to God, the Jews have turned it as a place of just a, a marketplace. So therefore, the Gentiles can't come to the house of God, to the mountain of God and worship, but rather they're finding all these animals and everything else that are there. And Jesus says, the house of prayer has been lost. The purpose of God has been lost. And you've turned this into a money-making racket uh, instead of making it a place of worship that is there. Ultimately, one of the things we see in all the Gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is that Jesus is coming in to bring judgment on the people of Israel, and not the people of Israel so much as the leaders of Israel. Because the leaders of Israel have led the people astray, mm-hmm. right? They are false teachers, they are false priests, they have defiled the offerings, they have defiled the temple itself. And so when Christ is going to go to the cross, what do we see happening to the veil? Horn, right? right? Symbolizing two things. One, it symbolizes the access that we now have into the presence of God, and it symbolizes God's judgment on the house of stone, right? It'll just be a couple decades later when that stone temple will be torn to the ground in A.D. 70, right? God is bringing judgment on the people of Israel at that time, in part because we read earlier, he's bringing a new temple, right? Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of a new temple. Apostles and prophets are the foundation stones. And all those who believe in the message of the gospel from the apostles are living stones. And that living temple with the Holy Spirit is building and growing to the ends of the earth, which begins at the cross and resurrection of Christ. Replace this temple that has been defiled by the false priests and false teachers in Israel. Wow. So, um, we get to Matthew 24 and 25. So, what is going on in the Olivet Discourse? Yeah, so Matthew 24, 25, there's a a lot going on uh, in those chapters, Mm -hmm. right? So, again, it's always good for us to say, okay, where is this in the book, right? So, these two chapters are probably the the last of the five discourses or sermons uh, that we find in Matthew's Gospel, right? So, the first one, uh, goes back to the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and now this one, chapter 23, 24, and 25, uh, we see God bringing, um, or Jesus bringing woes and curses on the priests. So interestingly, right, uh, Jesus begins in Matthew 5 with a blessing on his disciples who are with him. You know, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those, you know, uh, who are pure at heart, for they will... They will see the kingdom, or they will see God. Right? So those blessings are there. And then in Matthew 23, he has these woes on the Pharisees, right? Because of their uh, falsehood and the things that they're doing. But then he goes from there into chapter 24, and he begins to talk about the destruction of the temple. He's going to talk about what's going to take place at the end of the age. 
Um, and there are many who, who see these, okay, Jesus is now moving into the future. He's talking about what's going to happen on the very last day. And there's certainly part of that because at the very end, uh, in chapter 25, it's talking about the judgment seat where he will separate sheep and goats, right? In Matthew 25, we see the parable of the ten virgins as well as the parable of the talents, which seems to be speaking of how you conduct yourself in this age is going to have an eternal impact, yeah. right? So the point of this is to say, okay, um, how do I live wisely? How do I live soberly in this age in order to receive the kingdom that is going to come because of what Jesus Christ is going to do? Yet before moving to the end of the age, it just seems a little odd that it's not talking about what's right in front of Jesus, right? So this is in the last week of Jesus' life. He's coming and teaching the temple uh, that Friday, He's going to be nailed to a cross, and on that Sunday, he's going to be raised to new life. The new kingdom is going to begun, begin through his resurrection. So it's odd to me uh, that all of this is just going to be talking about the, the future. Obviously, some of it is. Um, it seems as though that Jesus has two parts uh, in what he's talking about here. And again, there's, there's differences of opinions on, on how to put all this together. But when he says... In Matthew 24, verse 3, he's answering a question from his disciples, right? So the disciples ask him in private. They're on the Mount of Olives. They tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And they're asking this question because of what has been said in verse 2. You shall see, uh, you see all these. Do you not? He's talking about the, the buildings there in Jerusalem. Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Mm-hmm. Of course, I say, okay, what do you mean, Jesus? When is that going to take place? And it seems as though the question here talks about when the things that he just talked about, when that will that take place? And then secondly, uh, when will be the end of the age, right? Jesus answered them, in verse 4, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I'm the Christ, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear wars and rumors of war. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. So often we read these as like, oh, it's speaking directly to me. The you is the guy who's behind the Bible, right? He's talking to his disciples, right? So I think it's first of all helpful to see, like he's answering their question in their context there in uh, the first century. And we see Jesus confirming this at the end of this section um, where he says in verse 34, Truly I say to you, again he's speaking to his disciples, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Mm-hmm. Right? And there are many who say this is a very challenging word to understand this generation. Well, it's challenging if verses 4 through 34 are somewhere in the future. Like, how does this generation see these things if he's talking about the future? But if he's talking about the events of the days that are coming up with this cross and resurrection, well, it's quite simple. Like, you who are in front of me will see these things. Right, yeah. Right? Verse 36 goes on to talk about, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. I think from verse 36 on, he's speaking about the age to come. Mm-hmm. Or I should say, when he comes back again. I think, though, from verse 4 to 35, he's talking about the things in the days of the disciples, right? So just to give a a brief passing glance at what he's talking about there, he's using very apocalyptic language, right? So in other words, the sky will darken, the heavens and earth will shake, right? All these things will be taking place. 
say, okay, well, when did that happen? We keep reading in Matthew, it happens on the cross. Yes, right. Right? Does, so yeah. on the cross, we see that the sky is darkened. We see that there is an earthquake that is taking place. We can even see that the powers and the principalities, Satan who had access to the throne of God, falls because Jesus defeats him at the cross and in his resurrection and ascension, he's going to clean heaven. He's going to remove anything unclean from the presence of God. Like, there is a change in the cosmos right, because yeah. of what Christ did in his death and resurrection. So there is a cosmic change. There's an apocalyptic event taking place in the cross. And what Jesus is giving us is a heavenly view of things taking place on the earth. And so when it then describes the fact that this abomination of desolation, this unholy thing that is in the house of God, it seems as though these are things that are taking place in the days of Christ. Right? Even when it says in verse 29 of Matthew 24, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Right? So that's language coming from Daniel 7, right? the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Probably the best way to interpret Daniel 7 and the coming on the clouds has to do with the Day of Atonement, mm. right? The high priest coming into the Holy of Holies on the clouds or with the clouds, that's what is taking place, right? And on the cross, Jesus as the offering of the Day of Atonement, who's cleansing the house of God, like he's fulfilling all of these things from Leviticus, Daniel, and all the rest of the Old Testament. He's fulfilling these things. He's making things new in this way. And thereafter, verse 31, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. They will gather his elect from the four winds and from one hand, uh, end of heaven to the other. Right? And so I just read the beginning of Matthew 24 as something that Jesus is describing. Like what's the theological event taking place in the cross and the resurrection? And then from there, he's teaching his people how to live wisely and soberly in this life. Where he uses the parables of uh, the ten virgins and the, uh, the talents. And then he says, because ultimately, there's going to be a judgment on the last day. Right? And so in Matthew 24 and 25, I think we have a word both immediately towards the cross, resurrection, and then after that to the end of the age with instruction for us in between to walk wisely. That is a great explanation. This concludes our discussion of the New Testament. Um, David, do you have any closing comments? I'll just keep reading the Bible, and when questions come up, just keep reading it. Most, yeah, keep of, reading most it. of our answers come as we keep reading verses in the context of the books we find them in. And as you're reading, if you do come up with questions that you'd like us to discuss on our podcast, please send them to Emmaus at obc.org. You may hear your responses on an upcoming episode. Via Emmaus is a podcast of Occoquan Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Our prayer is that you would read the Bible and read the Bible better. For more resources related to this episode and the gospel-centered ministry of God's Word, visit obc.org.